Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. With the future of the American cattle industry hanging in the balance and the loss of over half a million cattle producers since 1980, it's clear something has to change. What can we do to help bring back profitability and the beauty of the American cattle industry? How can we learn from the downfalls of the hog and chicken industries? We sat down to talk current legislation, competition, vertical integration, and a changing cattle industry with Generational Iowa Cattle Feeder and RCAF USA Vice President, Eric Nelson. Let's start with just give us a quick introduction and tell us about yourself, your family, your operation. Well, You know, I'm a fourth generation farmer and cattle producer here in in Northwest Iowa, along with my wife, Carol. And Carol and I have been married for 33 years in June. Five kids, two of them that are partners in the farm and cattle operation, and two grandsons and two granddaughters. And our second son is an agronomist and... Our youngest son is a diesel mechanic, and then our our baby, our daughter, is a sophomore at Iowa State University. So that's our family, and and it is a family operation. We've got a couple part-time individuals that will help us as needed, but virtually all the labor ends up coming from our family, and so we've all got skin in the game. My wife is a, a Nebraska native, so I'm I'm married to a Husker, and so we joke a lot about our mixed marriage of an Iowa Stater married to a Husker, and and so now my oldest son is married to a young lady from Nebraska, and my second son is married to a young lady that was born in Nebraska, and so we just, but we're only 20 miles away, and so we're we are in an interesting location here. 20 miles from Nebraska, 20 miles from South Dakota, and only about 70 miles from Minnesota. And so we, we end up, we get news from all of those states. And of course, I'm biased. I've lived here my whole life. But and, and of course, Western Iowa is where most of the livestock in the state, particularly cattle and hogs and sheep reside. Um, there's livestock scattered around the rest of the state. And some of the big poultry operations and swine finishing units are um, not only located here, but throughout the state, but just to the north of us about 35 miles is Sioux County, Iowa, which has the most cattle hogs and sheep. And I forget what the ranking is on poultry, but so livestock is big here in Western Iowa. And that's why I love it here. So can you tell us more about like what y'all do on your operation? You know, this time of year in April, we're, we're getting um, field equipment ready. You know, we, we raise corn and soybeans primarily. We raise some hay, we have a commercial seed business. So I'm in the process of delivering corn and soybean seed to customers every day working around the weather and and we're calving we have a cow herd kind of in the middle of calving season right now and so far that's going well as it should when it's really dry we're not fighting any mud this spring anyway and so then on top of the cow operation then we have two feed lots that we grow and finish cattle in although their capacity is down um, this year versus what it's been in the past but you know we're we we started out primarily as a cattle feeding family. Uh, when I was young, we never had cows. We actually had sows and we raised hogs and, and fed cattle, but we never had cows. That was added to our family about 30 years ago that we got into the cow calf side of the business. And that's kind of, it's led me into a lot of different things that I take it for granted what we do raising raising cattle and feeding them out, but there aren't very many of us left. We're kind of an endangered species. So kind of what's going on this time of year, April and May are probably the the most 
time critical months of the year. Planting season is, is kind of always that way. And right now we're just waiting for it to warm up and praying for rain every day. Yes, as I think most everyone in the country is, it seems like. So you've been involved with RCAF for a while now. Like it's been like almost since the beginning, correct? Yeah, I've, I've been a member for 20 years this year. Uh, and I can still remember the, the first RCAF meeting that I went to a, a neighbor, one of my best friends who used to rodeo all around the country. And, and he's a seed stock, has a seed stock operation, cattle seed stock operation, and had several rancher friends out in Montana. And he invited me to go to a meeting. And I was actually working at that time, back in 2002, I was still working full-time in the seed business, was a, a sales manager, but we had cattle already then. And he asked, you know, invited me to this, to that meeting that night and, and everything really clicked in, in, in what I saw. And I've been a, been a member ever since. Awesome. So as you kind of talked about y'all are family operation, um, y'all are generational operation. So can you tell us more about your history in the cattle feeding business? You know, as all farm kids end up doing, we you help out and do what uh, do what you can, depending on your age. But already by the age of ten, I was, you know, feeding cattle on my own and and filling in when my dad and my brothers weren't around. And then you know we we kind of were growing our cattle feeding business while I was while I was a kid, and then you know into the 1980s, and then there were the 1980s were very tumultuous. There was a, a dairy buyout program in 1986 where the government paid uh, dairies to liquidate their cows and there was a huge um, oversupply of, of market cattle at that time. But, you know, it actually opened an opportunity for me. And on, on the backside of the dairy buyout is when I started to feed cattle. And, and, and then like so many in this part of the world, um, a lot of folks end up seeking some off-farm employment, and my grandfather had had us had been in the seed business since the middle 1960s, and he and I were very close. And so uh, I've worked in the seed business since then, but was was uh, you know worked full time in the seed business for about 15 years, and um, and actually uh, left that employment about the time that I went to my first RCAP meeting, and. And since then, it's allowed me to 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 be involved and um, and you know pushing forward on on these issues to uh, ensure that future generations have a spot. You know, being a multi generational independent cattle feeder, you have had to have witnessed some changes in the cattle feeding business through the decades. Talk to us about what those changes have been. And, and how this packing industry has guided those changes. Yeah, probably the, the first memory that I have of that, I was, I was pretty young and, and uh, a buyer for one of the packing companies, his name's Frank Gilbert. He's um, getting up in years now. I still see him every once in a while. Um, but he would show up on a Monday morning to try to, to actively try to buy slaughter cattle on a Monday morning. And already by 2010, that started to really go away and the, the buying would happen just one day a week, generally late in the week, often mid-afternoon on Friday or later even in, in about a 20-minute time frame. And so that's kind of the bookends of, of what I've seen um, going from Monday morning 
active buying and maybe having 10 different Packer buyers stop by. A good friend of mine, Colonel John Phillips, I can still hear him on the radio saying um, on the radio, mom, get the kids out of the driveway. The Packers are, you know, uh, there's a lot of traffic. And and now, um, suffice to say, there isn't there isn't much traffic anymore. Leads me to another question. How long has it been since you have had multiple bids for your fat cattle in one week, two bids in one week? Well, no, we've continued to keep two bids or three, but there's generally only one that's a steadfast bid. There will be some, some, a couple of the bids will generally be below what's even reasonable. And so um, there'll be maybe $2 less than, than the other bid. And so there generally only ends up being one, one choice. And the other two, the other one or two bids that are generally there, um, not always. There were, there were times, you know, through COVID where there maybe was only one um, when things got backed up so bad. But most of the time there still ends up being a couple, but they're not what I would call really active. Um, active bids in the true sense. So we see some media, some um, social media influencers say, why don't you guys just demand more for your cattle? Why don't you just hold out? What is the climate of those conversations when you actually have a packer that is bidding? What is the climate? I mean, do you have that power to say, you know, I want more and, and actually know that you will get it. That all sounds really easy, but a, a good friend of mine had this happen. I'll just use this as an, as an example of how hard it is to carry that out. Um, two weeks ago, a good friend of mine sold around 2,800 head of slaughter cattle that week. And there was really only one packer that was active that, that had again, that top bid that I'm talking about versus the other packers that were bidding back a ways. And that packer was really adamant that they had supplies, um, that they were almost three weeks out before they were going to need those cattle. And, and that's always what's in the back of every feeder's mind is, is how long is it going to take for those cattle to, to, uh, to be called for? Because if they're really done, if they're really at 12 o'clock, you don't really want to feed them for another month. You, you know, they, they need to go to town. And that was really, you know, I've been looking back at COVID. That was the, the real horrible part about the COVID market is when I ended up feeding cattle, yearling cattle that were already 1500 pounds. And I had to feed them another 90 days before we could get them slaughtered. And that, uh, the financial ramifications there are terrible. So anyway, back to my friend who sold those 2,800 head um, it, it, you know, kind of just steady money because a lot of indicators were that the Packers had some inventory bought and that was on a Thursday. The next morning he got a call from that a Packers scheduler and they ended up all those cattle had been slaughtered by Monday night, the, the following Monday. So those cattle were all delivered and slaughtered within four days. And, and there's just, you, you know, you do the best you can. And, and, and this guy sells a lot of cattle in a year's time so he is not a neophyte at all right he has a lot of contacts and you know he had cattle that needed to be sold you know and if you get cattle that are really ready and it's that's 
probably the other big change versus the old days is there was a time um, back 25 years ago that if, if you really thought that the market was going to break and go down, you could try to get bids for cattle that were really under ready and they would bid. They maybe would bid less, but they would still, they would still bid and, and buy. And, and you could make a choice to make an early exit to, to kind of try to play the market a little bit. And now you absolutely don't have that wherewithal because they generally don't want the cattle until they're at one o'clock. Um, they really are, they would be willing to take them a little over fat. The percent primes go up, the amount of trim goes up, but uh, the white fat, the good white trim off of young beef ends up being blended with imported older cow meat um, that comes in just the lean. Uh, the imported cow meat doesn't come in. Nobody wants to buy hamburger that has red flesh speckled with yellow fat. They, they expect white fat. I still believe that we're, we're feeding cattle to a, a, a very extended end date to provide some extra fat for the blending for the blending business. But that's kind of got off on a tangent there. So I remember a conversation that you and I had last fall about you, you know you and your son's decision to kind of change the complexion of your feedlot capacity and go back to that decision that you guys made last fall to not load up on feeder calves. Yeah. And it, and it actually all started at the, at the superior corn belt classic sale, kind of the first big video platform of the summer. And it was actually hosted right here in Sioux city. And so we went to uh, the hotel and, you know, I had a bunch of friends there and we were watching cattle sell ones that we'd fed before. And, and I was sitting at a table of non-buyers. They were all friends and we were working our calculators and we were, you know, from 10 to $20 a hundred away from being able to buy those cattle to where they made any sense at all. And that was back when corn maybe was being priced at $5 a bushel. You know, and, and I just sold some corn here this morning for $7.70 a bushel. And so we just, we had to really, you know, think long and hard. And it's really difficult, especially when you've had, we, we have some family relationships in the cattle business that go back 50 years. And, and we've had to leave some of those cattle behind and they're tremendous cattle. But you, you have to be able to, um, to see that you have a chance. And little did I know when, when we, you know, we did make the, decision to pull back that some primarily red angus cattle that we had fed into the fall that we were going to have so much trouble uh, getting those cattle marketed and back in the day when the hog industry was being integrated the the big driver was the the crutch was genetics that the consumer has demanded um a better a better pig and, and it's, you know, the folks at Nyman Ranch would say that we maybe didn't develop a better big because they've created a whole side market for, for heirloom hogs that uh, basically the same hogs we were raising prior to, not, to 2000. But in, in around the year 2000 is when the hog feeding industry demanded that the people that were going to be players had to raise a certain kind of pig. And, and so here we are. 20, 22 years down the road and last fall had some high, high quality red Angus cattle that just were unsaleable for six weeks. 
And finally, when the Packer finally came forward with a bid, it was on the grid. And of course, the quality grade was outstanding, but the yield grade was terrible. They were mainly fours and fives because they had been fed six weeks too long. Um, and that's as close, I think, as that we dare get, because again, they're, they're mandating what genetics we're gonna be able to raise. And that's just way too reminiscent for me of how 95% of the hog producers were uh, forced to the sidelines. And then in the hog business, they had to build a certain kind of building to house the, the new leaner hogs that wouldn't survive in a cold climate. And within a couple of years, it was, it was over and the, the swine industry was integrated. And the, the, the first real losses were the, the uh, seed stock producers were gone just immediately because once somebody else starts making your genetics decisions for your herd, all of the independent seed stock producers are no longer needed. Staying on that topic of, you know, vertical integration and, you know, you kind of giving a recap of what you saw in the 80s and 90s and and what funneled the hog industry. I mean, not funneled, it railroaded that industry right for vertical integration. What do you say to those people that, that say, ah, this cattle industry, it's too big to be vertically integrated? I think that there were a number of folks and I, and maybe even me included along the way that were hopeful that, and I know I had, I had a good friend that uh, rest his soul that, that fed a lot of cattle, not too far from here. He always said that, you know, it was uh, our saving grace is that they can't push a bunch of cows into a confinement and breed them and, and have them have a calf. And, and which is what, you know, in the hog industry, it was, it was uh, for a long time. Anyway, it looked like that was all uh, easy peasy, but now you have environmental groups that are pushing back and don't want all of these hogs as crowded as they are. And so that, that debate is still going on, kind of see where that's going to go. But I had thought for, you know, probably by uh, 2010, real, fully realized that the choke point would ultimately end up being market access. Um, and that's really what it's gotten down to is market access. Just like this last fall, when we were trying to sell those red colored cattle, we really you know, um, we, we didn't have access to the market same way during, during COVID, um, we, we didn't have access to, uh, to markets and we watched cattle that, um, were AMA cattle that were going right by the U S highway that we live on, um, every day while we went, um, nearly three months without being able to move anything, you know? And so, um, and, and, and so all of that is, ends up being highly inefficient. But at the same time, the packing industry says that everything is, that they do is uh, because of economics. Well, it's, it's really because of the economics of their, corp, of their per share profit is what I would say to that. So, you know, it becomes really real for me as a cow-calf producer to have this conversation with an independent cattle feeder who this year said, I can't come to the market, to the feeder calf market and, and compete with these corporate feedlots. I'm out. You know, and I think that we saw that in the barns that um, there weren't as many buyers in the seats and there's not going to be as many buyers probably this next year. What is your future in the cattle feeding business if there aren't some major reforms made to start protecting the independent cattle feeder? So without, without meaningful change, you know, we'll, we'll continue to focus on the cows that we have. Um, and feeding those calves out. And we currently, you know, this year we'll market about direct market, the meat from about 20% of the calves that we raise and 
you know, unless there's meaningful change, we'll, we'll continue to work to try to expand that and, and market um, those animals directly to consumers as, aggressive, as aggressively as we can. Otherwise, you know, if we get change, you know, uh, and, I've, and I've told this story bef before in front of the Senate Ag Committee, you know, why was it uh, important for these changes that we've been fighting for? And I would say that um, because of this, the, the, the system on, on, on how we run our farm, you know, it, it's, it's sustainable, you know, everybody talks about sustainability, you know, our, our hopes are to raise enough cattle to, uh, to eat the grain that we raise on the land base that we have and use the manure that's generated to um, supply the, the factory of our grain production in kind of a closed loop system. And, and it works pretty well. And we don't have a lot of freight. Um, and that's the one thing that's gonna drastically change. Um, you know, all of these production systems that were developed the last 40 years, you know, right now we haul a tremendous amount of feed all the way to the high plains. And then all the meat has to be you know, trucked all over the country. Same way with, you know, the state of Iowa produces, almost, you know, uh, the majority of the country's eggs. And then everything has to be, you know, trucked from here. And our, all of our production systems were all predicated on cheap fuel. And we no longer have that, that's for sure. Um, and so I'm still hopeful. I still, you know, I'm still fighting every day um, because we just want to go back to, you know, why we built, you um, you know, the, the two feed yards we have, you know, my folks retired in 1996 and there was a little nucleus on the one location and we rebuilt that and, um, and started from scratch where we live and it's rewarding, you know, on our North feed yard, we've got um, initials in concrete um, written by, you know, etched in by my grandfather, by my dad, by myself, by my boys, and now we have some concrete that's been poured here with initials put in by uh, by a grandson, you know, and and none of that's taken lightly. And and I know a lot of other producers around the country feel that same, you know, that same pressure um, to try to to not break the chain and to you know to try to keep things going. You know, I we operate in a in a barn um, at one of our feed yards that my grandpa and great grandpa built in 1930. Um, you know, completely from scratch. And um, there's not a time when I'm in it or near it that I don't think about all the, uh, all the, the fights that they had, uh, the, the dry years, the war years, you know, and I, and I'd written that down too here that I don't think that all the, all of the folks in the armed services over the years that have given the ultimate sacrifice, I still don't believe that they did that um, in preparation to, to hand over our economy to just a couple corporations. I, I really don't think that that's what, um, what this country was destined for. I really don't. And so, you know, we'll, we'll continue to fight. You know, nobody is more aware of the menu of different legislative reforms being offered than you as an independent cattle feeder. You are the cattle feeder. We've got all kinds of media out there, all kinds of social media influencers talking about these legislative reforms, but they don't make their paycheck off of feeding cattle like you do. So you tell us which one of these um, options out there are the meaningful options that are on your radar that will help your next generation continue to feed cattle. You know, I, I, I wrote a, a few notes down because this, it is a jungle um, of, of all that's going on out there. 
But, you know, the bottom line for me is that once competitive forces are allowed to be lost in a market, it's really difficult to, to get that genie back in the bottle and to restore competition. And that's why I, I just see a lot of flailing um, around right now um, in Washington trying to, I think there's recognition that there's a problem and although some people probably have no idea how big it is um but you know i, I think that there are um, attempts that are being made that are sure to fail you know one of them are uh, you know there's a big focus on new plants that we've we've got to have new plants well <laughs> for several reasons uh, there i have issues with that you know so we have a highly profitable industry and the, the current players that are that are making the most money aren't the ones that want to build facilities, right? So that one's my crap detector kind of goes off uh, when you think about that. And new plants have been tried before in the past. And the one here in Iowa that was a great template, it was a cooperative venture, a bunch of cattlemen put bought shares and slaughtered their own cattle. And one of the big players just hammered them when it came time to sell meat. And, um, and, and they didn't have enough money. It takes a lot of money um, to fight competitive forces when you're big enough that you have to try to steal some major um, grocery chain um, order business. Um, and, and then it, it becomes a completely different, uh, completely different deal. And so I, I see that being, you know, that attempt out there, um, you know, the compromise bill I think is, uh, loved by the lobbyists. There's all kinds of angles for lobbyists to interject. And, um, and I think that ultimately that's, it'll be its downfall because it was written um, more for the lobbyists than for what it's really going to do for the industry. And again, when competitive forces are lost, it's going to take strong action. And there's very little that I see anywhere in, in that compromise bill in either version um, of the compromise bill that, that was gonna be anywhere close to strong enough action. When, when the Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico area is gonna be allowed to, to, to cash negotiate at 10, 11%, um, I mean, that, that's basically their sorts already. And then that lowers, that's gonna just lower the market in that area because those are the cattle that the packers really don't wanna own in the first place. So, um, you know, and then on the labeling side, there's a whole bunch of attempts um, to address things on labeling and, and it's still mandatory country of origin labeling that, that, that hits the nail on the head. And, and I want to go back a little bit to, you know, on, on our initial push for that back in, you know, in 05, 06, 07, and, and we got it passed, you know, and, and, and it, it until it was taken away those years we had decent leverage we we it, it wasn't perfect but it was it was pretty good and, and that's when things really changed was in about the time that cool washed out is when we really took a, a, a huge turn and so um the way i look at it we've got to return the cash trade in all regions and allowing certain regions just because they have disproportionate lobbying power to allow them to have a, a, a different minimum 
it's it's not how we do business. It'd be the first time in the history of the country where we're going to regulate a sector of the economy just based on what region they're in. Um, And I think that's just full of pitfalls. And ultimately, it's it's not going to get done what we need to get done because it's the it's the action of all the alternative marketing arrangements that have been done, the captive supplies that are gathered in the the Southwest is what ends up upsetting the equilibrium for everybody else. You know, we're already, and I haven't looked, I should have looked at what we traded last week. The week before it was in the 60s um, percent wise of cash negotiated trade in Iowa and and Southern Minnesota. And so we continue to not be the problem up here um, as far as percent cash trade, but when the prices end up being set in the South, and we end up kind of having to play by those same prices and their quality on average is way lower than ours. The percent choice that gets slaughtered in the Southwest on a weekly basis is still way lower than here. And so for us, even to get the same prices as, as the South um, is, is really hurtful because we end up paying more, you know, a lot of the feeder cattle that are, that are fed here are coming from your direction, Karina, or, South Dakota, Montana, very high quality cattle. And, um, and we haven't for a number of years been able to, reca- uh, to recoup um, our investment in, in those better cattle because the, the prices generally get set um, off of the, the captive supply country. And, and I, I get it. That is why the, the packing industry has lobbied heavily against making any changes there because they kind of have it the way they want it. So back to the bills. 5014 um, is is the bill that was, you know, not made for lobbyists. It was pretty simple, you know, 50% cash delivered within 14 days. Every plant that uh, um, where the the owner of the company had more than one plant and it's pretty simple and can't be massaged by outside forces. Um, Mandatory country of origin labeling, same way, pretty simple. I'm, I'm tired of the demagoguing done by the packing industry telling about the huge costs of, of M-Cool. And the Homeland Security laws passed in the early part of the 2000s after 9-11 mandates lot tracing. And so all of the lot tracing of, of all the, the, the beef and cattle through the system already has to be done. And so the, this whole cost... Um, ruse is nothing but a ruse uh and the the two economists from the university of tennessee put a paper together about two years ago that really pretty well stamped that and so i'm waiting though as as the battle for m cool continues to to heat up i'm guessing we'll hear about the the um the plight of the uh the packers and and all the costs and and that's all that's hogwash is what that is yeah, I think you nailed it. The simplicity of MCOOL and 5014 are actually what the lobbyists are fighting because it doesn't give them a paycheck throughout the years to be able to, as you said, massage those laws and continue to have them um, ebb and flow to meet who they work, you know, to meet the standards of who they work for. So very well put. But if I further could expand just a little bit on 5014, you know, it's been our um, position at RCAF is that, that would still be a transitory program because we're still going to have to have, you know, real levels of competition returned 
um, and 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 so there's there there's kind of uh, still a major project ahead. Even if we were to get 5014, there's going to have to be some permanent reforms that are made, um, as I see it, similar to what was done back 100 years ago, um, to to really bring um, all of the the major packers um, into uh, a competitive situation. Because without that any money that's going to be spent by good people trying to build a, a, a packing plant to be competitive, you know, and, and there are a couple of them that are proposed right now for out in Western Nebraska and one here and just straight South of me here in Western Iowa, that uh, unless something is done to deal with the, the, the raw market power that, that the, the big four have, it's going to be really, really, really tough sledding. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't really like the idea of, of putting out big government grants to help those firms because that's my money too. Um, and we've got to get back to everybody realizing that uh, that grant money that comes from the federal government is all uh, a chunk of our tax money. So recently um, there was a kind of a flurry of activity with RCAF in Iowa and you and Bill Bullard um met with Iowa State students in a, in a really big assembly. Talk about what happened at Iowa State. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fun set of circumstances. Um, uh, the head of the animal science teaching department at, at Iowa State, uh, Dr. Brad Scar, was one of my judging coaches that I had um, a bunch of years ago when I was at Iowa State. And he's been there ever since. And um, and, and now, you know, pulls together all the teaching activity there. And I've been fortunate enough to, to lecture at, um, uh, in front of a, a, a sophomore level ANSI class, ANSI 226. Dr. Scar reached out to me back, or reached out to Bill and myself back in January, I believe, um, want, asking if Bill would come and, and lecture um, a couple of senior level ANSI classes and and Bill was gracious enough to come. And so um, we headed to Ames and um, there were around 200 of these uh, senior level ANSI students. And it was, the, the class is basically a seminar class on industry happenings really. And so there's nobody better really at the time uh, than to have, uh, you know, the RCAF CEO, Bill Bullard in all of his years of experience and, and and we had a, a, a nice tour of the facilities there in the meat lab and and there was staff also in attendance as well as the students and um, you know it was it was it was just tremendous and we had a lot of students that stuck around uh, to ask questions after there were a lot of questions that went on in front of the whole group uh, toward the end of the presentation um, uh, and it was yeah it, it was uh, a super opportunity and. You know, uh, there's concern, I would say, I'll use the word concern on behalf of students, you know, uh, when they're 21, 20, 21 years old and thinking about their future, you know, they, you know, they're kind of um, um, shaking the tree wondering, you know, uh, you know, can I make this work? How, how can I make this work? And I know every lecture that I've made there, I always ask, how many uh, of the students, you know, their their goal in life is to own to be a, a, an owner of cattle, and it's almost universal those kids in those classes, and so you know the they're they're wanting to learn, 
and and not always aware of of the industry happenings politically and so it was it was a, a tremendous um outing and um and i think it, it really shows that we've you know there are a lot of friends um to our calf uh throughout the industry um you know people are aware that there are changes happening in our industry and um and and there's a an education level there's a, a level of awareness that that everybody needs to have and we kind of battle that every day you know there are uh, uh folks that, that that join an organization and assume that that organization is doing is looking out for their best interests you know and and because of that there can be cattle producers that aren't keenly um educated on a lot of these issues and and a lot of them are, are, are fairly detailed and bill has a great way of unraveling um a lot of those complexities and uh and he really hit the nail on the head that night well i know that we've received a lot of great feedback from some of the student body that was in attendance for that presentation and in fact we hope to get um, one of those Iowa State students on a future podcast episode to talk about what they experienced listening to Bill. And as you said, their their hopes, their dreams of wanting to come back into the industry, but um, really having to lean into, you know, what is the climate? I mean, can we make this work? So, so from Iowa State, the next night, um, you and Bill traveled south to Osceola, Iowa, and had a fantastic producer meeting with South Central Iowa producers. Talk to us about that meeting. Yeah, we had, we had a, a great talk um, the, the next night. Um, Bill and I traveled to Osceola to the, the Clark County Fairgrounds there. And um, a great individual that I just got to know um, probably six weeks ago, he actually called in and had a question um, at the RCAF office um david savage and um, he and some friends have kind of banded together cattle producers in about three counties and they've worked up a, a a list of potential solutions and things that need to be done to bolster profits and they're really profit driven and they're they're looking at uh, when they get done selling their calves for you know most years out of the last 10 that there isn't enough money left at the end of the year um, and, and many times the, you know, not nearly enough. And so they're really working hard on that. And that was really the, the impetus for having the meeting, um, is they wanted to be educated on exactly what was going on on the cutting edge politically. And then, the, you know, when they had, uh, shown up that night, there were a half dozen pickups and, and gooseneck stock trailers there with signage on them. And the next day they went to the federal building in Des Moines and met with representatives of Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst and presented their list of, of asks um, and potential solutions to this issue. And, and a lot of them mirrored closely what, what uh, our CAF is, is working for. And, and a number of the people in the room that night were, were our CAF members and some folks that I hadn't seen for a long, long time. And so, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a great venue um, kind of on the backside of COVID, a lot of people are just glad to see their friends and, and, and not maybe not close neighbors, but, um, you know, in, in the cattle business, it's kind of the same way everywhere. Everybody kind of knows who the cattle producers are, even if it's several counties away. And it's just, they haven't had the chance to, 
to rub shoulders that way for a while. And so um, it was all tremendous. But of course, the, the, the frosting on top was Bill, again, given that uh, tremendous, pr powerful presentation that he has um, that really closes the loop on why we need to have restorative action on competition and why we've got to have uh, mandatory country of origin labeling. Okay, so as we wrap up, one question we always like to ask people on the podcast, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Well, you know, I'm going to give you a first and a close second, because if you'd asked me a year ago, it maybe would have been the other way. So it kind of just depends where I'm at. But the New York strip um, prepared medium rare, of course, and then char crust is actually my favorite seasoning to put on a, a New York strip. And so you'd have just if you Google char crust, you'll see what it is. And it's a proprietary blend of of uh, seasonings that just it. Yeah, the garlic peppercorn version is my favorite. So that's how I like a New York strip. Um, a close second, though, would be a tenderloin or filet with uh, garlic and, and pepper and a lot of pepper. I, I can, boy, either either one is going to be pretty, pretty excellent. Pretty yeah, awesome. sound really good. <laughs> I need to go eat lunch now. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, OK, any final thoughts before we jump off here? Well, the only final thought that I would give is that I, I think that, you know, I was, I was, you know, Bill and I were out in Washington, D.C. last week for a couple of days of meetings with a group that, that we've, that RCAP's been involved with for a, a number of years working on, on trade issues um, in and out of agriculture. So some of it's, it has to do with trade of manufactured goods and then some of it with, with ag goods and momentum is, is headed our direction. I guess that would be my message from after being out there at that meeting, you know, we had three senators and I think seven congressmen came and visited with us and they all asked to come. Not, there weren't any of those that were courted to come and speak to us. They wanted to. And so I think that there's some, some realization that we had outsourced um, a little bit too much of our, of our economy. And I think that that can be good um, for, our agriculture and and particularly for our for our cattle industry. Now there will be folks that say that oh yeah but exports but exports and and I think those will continue because again we have the premier beef product the world over raised under the the best of conditions. Um, but you know uh, we're we're hollowing out rural America by continuing to outsource. Um, a lot of our beef that that we consume in this country, which is at 20% right now. And so, um, but I'm really encouraged. Uh, I think there's a movement afoot in this country to look within and, and our agriculture is strong. And I think it's going to, it's going to lead the way for our country kind of back out of kind of this malaise that we're in. And, um, and I, I'm really encouraged by what I saw out in Washington, D.C. We are so thankful that you got to come and join us on here today, Eric, and we are so appreciative of you and your work on behalf of the American cattle industry. As Eric described, we have watched the downfalls of numerous facets of American agriculture because of integration, and the cattle industry is headed for the same path. We have to do something, or else the next generation is never going to get to experience the true beauty of being independent cattle producers. We have to band together and fight for our freedoms.
our legacies and the next generation. We at RCAF encourage you to be involved, make your voice heard in Washington, and educate yourself on the issues affecting your industry. Call your senators and encourage them to say no to compromising the American cattlemen by regionalizing the cattle industry, handing over the cattle market to the USDA, and much more. Tell them to say no to the compromise bill, S4030. Instead, tell them to help create valuable competition in the cattle market by requiring packers to purchase 50% of their cattle on the cash market with the 5014 Cattle Market Protection Bill, S949. Tell them to help support reinstating mandatory country of origin labeling for beef with S2716 and HR 7291, the American Beef Labeling Act. Please reach out to us with any questions and follow along at USA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website, www.r-cafusa.com.